Good morning, Jericho Congregational Church. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Phil Corvo. Um, I'm starting a class here. Um, I'll jump right in. The background to the next 10 weeks is the mission Jesus left to his disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. So as you've tried to live out this command, you've probably found that it's difficult. That realization can lead you to a couple of different assumptions. One of them is that our communities can't be reached with the gospel. I think there's some people who probably feel that way. Or it can lead you to assume that we probably need to change what we're doing to try to reach them. This class will hopefully help us take a look at how we currently bear witness to the gospel and how we could do it differently. So the book I'm working out of, um, it's called Family on Mission. The author is a guy by the name of Mike Breen and his wife, Sally Breen. So the authors, um, Mike is an apostolic leader. He's had a huge influence on how churches make disciples. He's also a church planner. He actually started as a youth pastor and then a church planner. Mike believes that the key to the Great Commission is how we live in relationship as a church and how we attempt to make disciples. One of Mike's unique recommendations is that Christians live in a unique missional extended family. He calls these missional communities, I'll call them MCs and missional communities. He also teaches that a crucial key to the Great Commission is that the best place to make mature disciples is within these missional communities, these extended spiritual families on mission. And not surprisingly, he believes that spiritual families on mission are a much stronger witness than lone individuals on mission. Mike believes that the spiritual family or missional community can actually lead to a revolution in disciple making. Some of us may have been browbeaten about making disciples or maybe have beat up ourselves uh, or really put a lot of pressure on ourselves to do that. If you feel yourself getting suspicious with me, you know, you hear me saying, oh, I found a trick to doing this. I think you'll find Mike's words different and encouraging at the same time because of his approach. So some of my values for this class, um, I believe very strongly to be effective at making disciples. The priority is not just digesting complex and more complex information, but rather it's more learning to obey the fundamentals, the fundamentals that Jesus taught. Fundamentals like abiding, prayer, witness, spurring each other on to love and good deeds. Obviously that's Paul. I think it's Paul. Um, so another value I have is discussion. I'm going to open up some cans of worms that um, and I'll probably leave out some important stuff. The way we kind of progress through the material is to pray and discuss it as a group. But moving towards real actions, not theoretical discussion, but discussion towards concrete actions. And then another value I have is how you eat an elephant, one bite at a time. So when taking on something like changing the way you engage your community, um, it's completely overwhelming at first glance, but the, the, I believe the trick is, and what Mike actually says the trick is, is to pick one thing that God is putting on your heart as a group of people and then to employ that. And then once you've done it, 
and you've you've absorbed this new habit, then you pray for the next one, and then you you act on that one, and you remain faithful, you remain consistent, and then over time, you see a large change. So, what's my experience with the topic of missional communities? Um, I was a part of a leadership team of a church that employed missional communities as its primary, its main focus. And I was a part of a missional community in Winooski with seven members. Um, another thing about myself, I've been focused on the question, how do I live out the Great Commission for a long time? It's been a central, persistent question for me. And then all the questions that follow from that. How do I share my faith effectively? How do I live in such a way as to open doors to share my faith? How do I pray for my community? How do I learn to be sensitive to God's spirit? What are my particular gifts that God wants me to use inside the church and out in the community? How can our church be wise in helping our members discover their God-given gifts? How do I manage a busy life in living in Christian community? Um, I hope for this class is to start a discussion that is ongoing. We take a look at the concept of the missional community and consider how employing them would influence every aspect of our, our faith and our witness, our personal faith and our witness to the community. How could they make our relationships with Jesus better, our discipleship of our membership better, and our witness brighter and more far-reaching? Practically, this would mean members of our church together prayerfully, prayerfully innovating how we worship, how we disciple one another, how we live in community, and change how we work together to open doors for the gospel and reach members of our community with the gospel. Um, so I'm going to take a little bit of time and share my experiences of trying to make disciples and how that led me to believe missional communities are a wise use of our finite resources and focus. So I was raised by Christian parents, um, and I'm just going to jump right to when I was about 18 years old. So uh, when I was 18, I joined the military, and I I was active duty, so I was not living at home. I was moved to a base where I lived for three years. And <clears throat> that journey began with basic training, nine weeks, and then four weeks of job training. And I was put in a barracks with a bunch of almost all 18-year-olds. And that experience really turned the light on for me because all at once I was really exposed to, I could really see people's values and belief system working out and how they talked about other people and, and how, you know, in basic training you have you have training, but you have so little to do. There's a lot of downtime where people just talk and they start sharing stories. And I just realized that the world was more messed up based on this kind of sample of men from all over the country. The world was really messed up. And there were so few guys that I felt I heard talking in such a way that revealed that they had like a selfless or a loving perspective towards their neighbors. Um, so... I was like, you know what, there's something to what my parents have been teaching me. Um, so I basically thought to myself, if I'm going to consider following Jesus and being Christian in a different sort of way, I take it more seriously now, I really want to understand what it teaches. So I started reading the Bible like a guy in a mission to figure out what it really taught. Um, and interestingly, I actually was given some navigators literature when I was in the army. So Within months of studying scripture, I realized that to be a Christian meant becoming a disciple of Jesus. 
in following Jesus as Lord as your first and only master. I also realized that Jesus called people into his mission, and it was an actual mission, the kind of mission you could say, I'm leaving right now, are you coming with me? Uh, And it became apparent to me that Jesus' mission was central to him. He was about his father's business, no buts about it. Nothing came before serving his father. It seemed like a huge difference than from what I had seen in church. I assumed that people must not be choosing to engage in Jesus' mission, or it would have been more obvious in church life. It wouldn't have been a surprise to me now reading the Bible that this is what Jesus taught. I also realized that Jesus made it clear that to say no to following him was to say no to him. So I became completely wrapped up in a question, how do I follow Jesus? Which led to, how do I join him on his mission? So my first decision was, I decided I would obey Jesus, I would obey Jesus in following his mission. If only I could figure out how. So if you could pause here, just pause this, and make a list of some things that you, in your experience, have discovered is part and parcel or key to making disciples or what you suspect is key to that. And I'm going to, after you guys do that, I'm going to go through my own experience of that. So go ahead and pause it now. Okay. So I started by assuming obeying Jesus meant following him like a person obeying a Lord. But like I mentioned, I was community community or Christian community less without it when I joined the army. I was relocated to a base. I lost my Christian community. So I started to disciple myself, which probably sounds awkward. And it was more terrible than it was awkward. But thankfully, God was faithful. He did send a Christian into my squad. Squad is about 10 people. Excuse me. And just for just to show how amazing that was, my battalion had hundreds of people in it, and I don't think there were very many Christians at all. And I happened to have a Christian in my squad. So we were like-minded. We were both baby believers, and we spent a ton of time talking about what it really meant to follow Jesus, how you really did that. Um, so I got promoted prior to deploying. And right, so when you get promoted, they bring you in front of your company and they do a little ceremony, and they say, do you have anything you want to say? And so I said, hey, guys, um, when we deploy, um, when we're in theater, I am going to have a Bible study. So if any of you guys want to join me, um, uh, I'd, I'd love to have you. So, but I was a baby believer. I had so little understanding of what Christianity was. So while I was deployed, I made these care packages um, as a way to, I was like, well, I'm in Iraq Um, I might as well try to share my faith with these people here because in the Jesus I'm reading about in the Bible, he's active. He's out there getting stuff done. So I might as well, you know, maybe he'll use me. So I I knew that from talking to my interpreters who were from Iraq, that a way you show kindness to an Iraqi person is actually um, you make like a care basket or a care package of things like lotion and soap and shampoo. And, and what he told me is in Iraq, a guy doesn't give a woman flowers. He gives her like a basket of soap and stuff. So I made these baskets with like toothpaste and toothbrushes and dental floss and sunblock and lotion. And when we were in this village that we patrolled for about a year, I, um, I gave them out. And at the same time in 
the package was a letter written by my Iraqi interpreter. And um, an interesting thing about these letters was I had two letters. I had one that said, you know, Phil's a Christian and he has Bibles and he'd like to give them out to you if you would like them. And then there was another letter that described that I put in the Bible that said, um, you know, Phil believes that Jesus is the way to God. And the Bible tells us about Jesus. Uh, if you would like to read it, we encourage you to start with the New Testament. And what was neat is I'd given it to an interpreter and he was a Muslim and I asked him to write the letter for me. And he did. And I was a little suspicious, though, about what it really said. So I brought it to another interpreter. And um, unbeknownst to me, this interpreter was Canadian. He was a Christian. And so he said, he read the letter. He's like, this is, this is all wrong. Let me write you a letter. And so he wrote me this beautiful letter that went inside the cover of the Bible, another letter that went inside the care package. So I gave all these care packages, and all these women came up to me, and they asked for the Bible. So I was able to give out a handful of Bibles with these letters. So, um, so I was desperately trying to figure out how to follow Jesus. What does it entail? Um, I continue studying the Bible, trying to figure it out, studying this navigator's literature, trying to figure it out. Um, how can I be a follower of Jesus? So based on my research at that time, and my background, I assumed I probably had to be a missionary to some sort of, um, like, you know, third world country, if I was going to take Jesus seriously. Jesus seemed to me to be very anti-established life. He was very anti-comfort, it seemed like. Um, so... I was trying to sort all this out. So the first missional lifestyle I attempted was to embody was obedience to the call of Jesus. So I ended up going to the University of Vermont after I got out of the army to become a nurse because I thought I should be some sort of relief worker in Africa was actually my first plan. And I always remember Dominic saying to me, um, there's a chapter of the Navigators at UVM and Ben Kordemach is actually a part of it and um, you should join. And... Um, so I did. And the next five years were humongous for me because, and for my faith, because I got invested in my people that were wiser and further, further along in the faith than I was. Now, the question, how do I make disciples, re remained at my core. At this time, I studied, I was spending a lot of time studying people who had powerful ministries, trying to figure out what they were doing that was making them successful. The Navigators teaches relational evangelism heavily. This gave my desire to live out the Great Commission a direction. I adopted that. I really tried to invest in relationships and sow seeds of the gospel in that way. So I invested and focused on my relationships with roommates, friends, classmates, etc. I had a dorm mate that showed just immediate interest in me and in the gospel and said that there was something different about me and uh, started coming to church with me and we had some great discussions, and then within, within a matter of weeks from his interest, he just flipped completely and became a staunch atheist and ended up, you know, for years, we ended up kind of debating back and forth, and he was um, supporting the atheist viewpoint, and I was obviously defending Christianity. And I started wondering, what, that's weird, like, what did I do wrong? So... Also at this time, I have the Navigators investing in me. I also had an uncle who played a huge role in investing in me at this time. And, um, this uncle has incredible faith, um, incredible prayer life, and incredible testimonies. And he, in this time, invested in me. We would speak on the phone, sometimes every week, for hours. 
And he taught me about the significance of prayer and learning to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And he always gave examples from his life of where he had learned that and how he had learned that. Um, he, so at that point, I started trying to add prayer and sensitivity to the Spirit to what I was doing. Um, my sophomore year of college, I had a NAV staff guy who was really investing in me named Matt Kinnick. And one day he was hanging out in my room. I went to the bathroom. And in that time, a guy walked by and he invited him to a Bible study with us. And we had a, I think we invited a few other guys that came to that Bible study. And the Bible study didn't last very long. I think I actually stopped it for some reason. But I really continued to invest in this guy, Justin, and really tried, you know, friendship evangelism. So we had great talks. He admitted to some remarkable, he, remarkably, he admitted to some really big struggles. I presented my struggles. I presented Jesus as the solution to my struggles, to his struggles. And, but it wasn't quite enough to cause him to pivot and, and really change any of the direction of his life. Um, so I started wondering, what, what do I have to do differently? So I thought, well, maybe I just have to cast a wider net. Um, and then maybe if I do that, I'll see more people become followers of Jesus. So I um, invited, I was a sophomore at this point, so I'd made friends. I invited 14 guys who I thought might have some interest in attending um, um, a Bible study, an exploratory Bible study. And I didn't lead it, though. I invited my brother to lead it. And so this was like a glimmer of this idea we're going to touch on later of you know, different gifts, people using their different gifts. Gifts, But every Sunday afternoon, I think it was Sunday, maybe Saturday, we, I'd have these guys over, I'd make lunch, and Dom basically took us from Genesis to Revelation and did a phenomenal job teaching these guys. And they seemed interested. Um, so that lasted for a semester. The next semester, I tried to ramp up that Bible study. So I invited those two guys to another one. One of them said, no, I'm too busy or something like that. And the other guy came. So we met for another semester. But again, neither of these two guys like pivoted and changed their course to become followers of Jesus. Um, so again, I'm wondering, what am I missing? So I was desperately trying to figure this out. I wanted to know what do I have to do differently? So I'd been, at this point, I'd been focused on making disciples for a few years, wondering what do I have to do differently, like I said. And a young guy came to my church, and he shared a story that that made a light bulb go off for me. So this guy, I think he was from the St. Johnsbury area, in uh, a group of his Christian friends heard of a family that had lost custody of their kids because their trailer was disgusting. I think they had animals living in their trailer with them, like farm animals or something. And so they came alongside this family and just completely gutted, like cleaned the house out and got them back to the point where they could have their kids back. Now, I don't know what, um, you know, I don't know what their continued relationship was with this family. Um, for those of us who've read When Helping Hurts, um, you know, if you just help this family out and then you don't disciple them beyond that, you may not be really addressing the core problem. But I remember, still I had a light bulb and I remember calling my brother and sharing that I thought this guy had a point that 
people in church, myself included, were tired of always hearing, go make disciples, go make disciples. They wanted to be invited to join in something. So I decided that I needed to live a life of good deeds with my Christian brothers and sisters helping me. So, uh, and around that time, I actually, me and my sisters and my brother and Hannah Cusio, um, invested in a family. And we, what we did was, um, I knew them through a program called Kids Alive. And um, these two little girls had lice and the mom just kept shaving their hair. And when I spoke to her, she said they hadn't been able to cure the lice. And so we, for like a couple weeks, took over the whole project for this mother. And I'm talking about, we bought the stuff, we bagged the laundry, we bagged the stuffed animals. I talked to Betsy Cordemont. She told me what to do. Um, and we, we did it for him. We cured the lice. And then we kind of, I kind of stopped. So it was like good deeds, not a lot of follow-up. Um, and in that experience, I learned that there was something missing. They, we, I kind of, without getting into it too much, there was a handful of ways where they really took advantage of us. And I think they were being dishonest. Um, and, and I realized that there was, there needed to be more than good deeds. So in my time in the navigators, now transitioning, uh, in my time in the navigators, I went on five spring break trips and three of those trips, three or four of them, we went to a, a ministry to homeless people in Atlanta. In this ministry, um, there was a church and then there was showers and places to do laundry and meals offered. And um, this church was headed up by a guy named Mel Rolls. And something he told me set off another light bulb. Um, his ministry began, um, he came to faith when he was in high school. He'd been like a bullied child. And then he changed high schools and all of a sudden he was like very, very popular. And he actually came to faith around that time. And so he took over a youth group. And he remembered, so his first his first role within the church, official role, was as a youth pastor. So he remembered what it was like to be, as he put, to be hurting. Or he knew what it was to hurt. And so he had one missional strategy. So he said to his youth group, the kids that everyone ignores, that no one wants to be friends with, we're going to love them. And at that time in my life, I'd had a question. Because I'd, I'd heard and I'd read Jesus' teachings on loving the least. And I'd always wondered, if we love the least, well, how are we going to reach all of society? Aren't we going to spend all our time with the least? And then won't there be a huge subset of society that misses the message? And what Mel Roll said is when his youth group did this, when they loved the kids that everyone ignored, everybody noticed. And kids from all over the school joined the youth group. So I thought to myself, I need to to reach the community for Jesus. I need to serve the least. Um, but like I said, there's more there's more to that. I had served the least um, in some circumstances, and there was still something missing. So in the na the navigators had um, guest speakers come periodically, and one of them was this amazing woman named Beth Kidd. And what Beth does now is she has a ministry. She has these houses in Lowell, Mass, and other a few other places, I think. 
and she invites people to live with her and she disciples them for an extended period of time. So this ministry began. Um, Beth was uh, really a great nurse. She was a brilliant nurse. And shortly after getting out of nursing school, she knew what God was calling her to. She moved into the inner city of Boston and she lived sacrificially. Um, so she um, had a, a lot of remarkable stories, getting to know people from all different backgrounds and different struggles. Um, one story that sticks out to me, um, there was a, a former prostitute that was living with her that she was discipling that just vanished one day. And she found out that the girl had gone back to prostitution. And in inquiring why, she found out that the prostitute's pimp had threatened her and had killed another prostitute uh, at some point. And so this former prostitute was going back into her, into prostitution. So Beth went looking for this woman and confronted the pimp. And the pimp, if I recall the story, threatened her, um, threatening her safety. And she said to him something along the lines of, you can't threaten me. I'm a child of God. And he completely lost his nerve and left this prostitute alone. And so another story, when Beth was in, in the inner city, her kids would ask her, why are we living here? You know, we don't like living here. And she said, because we need to be here. So for these people in our neighborhood, and there was a house fire and, um, a family died, uh, a part of a family died. I think there was like a son and a father who survived and a mom and a baby or something who did not. And this, I think, actually, I think it was one son survived. And this son came back one day and to visit the house and Beth was there. I don't remember how this all took place, but she said that they just cried with the kid and just grieved with them. And that day her kid said, now we understand why we're in, in this neighborhood. Um, she also had a story, um, because of her ministry, people would contact her when there were people that no one else could help. And there was a guy dying in a hospital and his bowel had fallen apart. And so basically that always leads to you dying. Um, when you have a, I think his bowel came disconnected from his stomach. So that always leads to serious infection. So the hospital called her to just be by his bed while he died. And um, so Beth went to the hospital, spent the night with him, and she said that the presence of God was so palpable that whole night in that room. And in the morning, this resident walked in expecting to see the kid dead or dying, and the kid was better. He was completely better, and the resident couldn't believe it. And then a team of doctors was rounding. They came in behind the resident, and they said to him, Something like, I thought you said that this man was dying. And he said, he was. This woman and her God have healed him. So Beth's example, Beth Kidd's example set off um, a light bulb for me. And I, I, I realized that if I wanted to be more effective at making disciples, I needed to live a life of presence and be willing to move down the social ladder like she did, if that's what God was calling me to. So I joined... Um, a kids' church that served at-risk youth in the Old North End called Kids Alive. And I actually met Mrs. Jakewith there. Um, and I thought this was a way to live a life of presence and serve the least. Um, 
And, and after having done that for about a year or two, I, I wanted to build on what I learned from it, but I wanted to incorporate more of a discipleship model um, like we did in the Navigator. So I, me and my friends, I think about eight guys, we were all in our 20s pretty much, started a boys sports program. And it was great. Um, we would play catch the flag or dodgeball. And um, we had about 15 to 25 boys uh, every Thursday night that would come. And um, um, we would have sports and then a short lesson with dinner. And I figured, you know, these Christian men will be kind and be a good example of Jesus to these kids. And I figured it would it would possibly be really, it would be really fruitful. So after doing it for a couple of years, we, we felt like we weren't gaining traction with the kids in terms of maybe it's too much to expect for kids. I think it was too much to expect for kids. Um, but we thought, well, maybe we need to invest in them individually. So we, in addition to the program, we started asking that everybody who was involved in the program would also invest in one kid outside of the program. Um, so, and that was difficult. And to be honest, not a lot of people did that. There was only a couple, I think, who made regular investments outside of that program. So, um, at that time, I'm still very eager to invest in the least. Um, so, I remember dropping a kid off after boys group or picking him up. I think it was dropping him off. And um, he had a little niece that had a, a big burn on her leg. It was fresh. And I just thought, you know, Jesus said, such as you've done the least of these, you've done unto me. I was like, whatever I do for this little girl, I'm definitely doing for Jesus. So I was a nurse at that time. I had already become a nurse. So I went to the hospital. I went to the burn unit and I I spoke to the manager of the unit and I said, hey, uh, surface level burn, uh, does she need medical attention or is this something I can take care of myself? And the lady said, no, I just... Make sure it doesn't get infected, you know, keep it covered, keep it clean. So she told me what products to use. I went to the pharmacy, picked it up, and I, 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 I showed the mom how to take care of that and ultimately got involved with that family. That family was, um, they'd been resettled to Burlington. They were from Burundi. And I spent the next couple years really investing in that family. Um, it was an extended family, so there was mom, dad, they're like six or seven kids and then two granddaughters. Um, and so I was doing boys group. I was investing in this family. And I was starting to realize I was getting burnt out because the time restraints, or the time commitment was humongous. And I was also realizing I was feeling extremely alone. Um, I was figuring it all out on my own. And so this went on for a while like years. And um, there's one moment I can remember. There's a story I'm going to tell you now. This was another light bulb moment. Um, one of the sons in that family, his name, his name is Kabora. I was helping him on a English paper or paper for English class. And uh, one of the tension points, points of tension in this family was they're always arguing over the computer because they only had one. And like I said, there was like 11 people. And so like, the three oldest sisters in the family always got to use it first. And then there was like scrap of time, scraps of time left over for the younger kids who all wanted to watch it. So we're writing this paper and um, we stopped to talk about it. And we turn our backs and this young 
brother, the youngest brother, Reuben, kind of sneaks in and closes it. And I remember, like, when I realized he'd done that, grabbing him, bringing him over to the bed, sitting him on the bed, and yelling at him, being like, do you realize what you just did? We've been working on that, and you closed it. And I just remember him bursting into tears, and then I was just convicted, and I realized, um, I just had this moment where I was like, what am I doing? Like, putting all this effort in to try to make a difference, and like, look at how I'm doing this. Um, so I, I just realized that something was wrong. Was, I needed something else. Um, so there's, um, and this, this lesson reminds me of a sermon by Tim Keller I heard where he talks about if Christians go out into the world and their foundation is not a, a secure identity in Jesus that they're acting out of, they'll actually, um, they'll have no foundation for action and they can often do more harm than good. So I just was realizing this was, there was an issue here. Um, that my my practice, my model wasn't working. And I also started realizing somewhere around this time, another problem I was having was I was not good at communicating the gospel. I can remember this coworker of mine stopping me and saying, what is it that you want me to know about Jesus or about God? And I just remember having no sense of how to respond. And I realized I was investing an incredible amount of time in this family, in this boy's sports program, with the hopes that the gospel would be heard and accepted by people. And then I realized that I really did not know how to share the gospel well. So if I ever got to the point where someone wanted the gospel, I was bad at communicating it. So, I, so I'm realizing that there's, again, there's something missing. Um, by this time, I had also formed some beliefs around the church and mission. Like I said, I was I realized I'm spending a lot of time investing in people every week. The mission's way too big for me. One of these one of these family members could be, you know, who I spend a couple hours with every week. And I realized I need help because this family alone would could use a team. So I'm wondering how can I disciple a family of eleven people? spanning the ages from 2 to 60. And I'm thinking that would take a church. At the same time, I realized that many of my Christian friends had no one that they were regularly investing in that was outside of the church. And it seemed obvious to me that if Matthew 25 gives a strong warning against ignoring the least of these, that the church at large needed to discover a better way of teaching its members to engage and serve the least in their in their communities. Um, so there's here's me with more needs than I can shake a stick at, and then I have these friends who seem to not know where to get started. So it just seemed that there needed to be something I could bridge those two worlds. So around this time, I moved to Colchester, and I was living across the street from a really wise and godly man named Alec Cameron. And we developed a really unique and deep friendship. And and he invested in me. And in that time, he identified legalism, broken theology, fears about God. Um, we talked at length about making disciples, Jesus' call to mission, 
And he was the first person to actually tell me about missional communities. Um, he suggested that I learn more about them. And around that time, part of the reason he told me about that was his church was hosting a guy who was actually pioneering missional communities in Chicago. And interestingly, this guy and Mike Breen, the guy who wrote the book that I'm teaching this course out of, are friends. And they actually, while Mike was writing these books on it, these two guys were talking back and forth a lot. So this guy came from Chicago, and Alec actually used me as his teaching um, prop. So he had this guy interview me in, in front of a small group of people from his church. And this guy kind of showed how a missional community equips the church so much better. And the idea, to the best of my memory, um, as I heard about it, was um, that the church finds like a leader or a point person who is kind of gets into a network of people and then surrounds them with a team of people. And I think one thing I've seen is in the church, there tend to be these people who are network openers and they can open up networks of people. They can get into them pretty quickly and make friends and open up these relationships, but they don't have enough time to invest in those networks themselves. They need a group of people to come behind them. So um, so that's, that's a pattern I've seen. Um, so about a year or two later, a uh, church planner moved to Burlington. And this church planner wanted to pioneer a missional community model of church. So I'd learned about missional communities. I wanted to employ them in the, they were in the back of my mind. I thought they were a good idea. It answered, it, it, it definitely fulfilled a need I was aware of. Um, and this, so this church planner, um, he'd started a church in New Jersey. They'd made disciples of people who were not Christian. Um, and so that was the kind of church I wanted to be a part of. So I, I, um, started meeting with this guy pretty regularly and he had all the same values I had about discipleship, serving the least. And he recommended a book by Mike Breen called the uh, missional community field guide. And so I read this, I read through this book and it said everything I wanted to hear. Missional communities, a new way of doing church. It's a new, but it's an old way. Um, Mike and the folks who pioneer these churches are quick to point out that this is probably what church looked like 2,000 years ago. But what they were saying was these churches are making disciples. They're getting into all the different crooks and crannies of society. They're reaching people and they're taking off. And so this offered a solution to the problem of the church struggling to know how to engage and where to engage um, because missional communities had proved themselves as being effective for getting people out into the community. And it was an answer to my a solution to my problem of having more work than I knew how to handle. So I actually joined this church. We ended up naming it Burlington City Church. I was a part of it for six years. I spent two years living on the same street as six other Christians with the goal of starting a missional community in Winooski. And it was incredibly hard. It was actually one of those years was the hardest year of my life. And I would say we never got anything meaningful off the ground. And that leads me to a, a really important point, which is realistic expectations is the key, is a key to the process of embracing the values of these missional communities. It requires time and patience and problem solving as a team. 
Um, some of the strengths of this church were there were what we called huddles, which was like a life group or um, um, like a home fellowship group. Um, and we would share our struggles and our woes, but we would also um, focus on, we would also, we would also discuss like mission, the mission at hand. So this built some lasting relationships. Um, I ended up really loving some of these people. Um, at the same time, trying to work together put a lot of stress on the relationships. And so with some of these people, I formed great relationships. And in other, in other times, it really kind of overwhelmed some relationships. Or, and so I kind of saw both extremes come from this. Um, so we, another strength of this church was we had programs and outings where we served our neighbors. Um, but after six years, Burlington City Church closed. Um, so some of the difficulties that I saw with that were there were definitely difficulties with the team dynamics and the leadership team. Um, we tried to, so Kevin, the lead pastor, moved up to Burlington and within two years tried to launch three missional communities at the same time. They were one church, three different missional communities to three different neighborhoods. So each missional community had its own leadership team. So if you can picture, we were trying to train three leadership teams and launch them all at the same time. Um, it was new to the lead pastor. It was new to everybody. Um, the, and so um, that was one of the issues I saw. Um, I learned a lot about the importance of character in that time and how character really influences the interactions between believers and that without character you really can't go anywhere as a group everyone has to has to have some character and humility to be able to work together um you know people can't put themselves first their their vision their ideas first um at this time in my life i also started to pray more consistently um with everything i tried over the years and invested in people um i I knew, I'd always known, like I'd mentioned, my uncle had taught me that prayer was really key, but I figured it was time I really invest in that more. So um, I'd had a missionary during my time in the Navigators, a missionary to Mexico, tell me that um, what he did is he'd have a notepad and he'd write the name of a person on a page. And as he prayed for them, he'd write down the things that came to mind that he felt God was telling him to pray for them. And he'd always return to that page and continue to add to it. And he said that, if you, if you do that, over time, you'll know on that page, you'll know the things on that page that God is telling you to pray, and you can be consistent in them. So I started to do that with a handful of guys, and I I had a huddle with a handful of them. So two of the guys in this huddle that I started weren't actually Christian. They were willing to explore Jesus, and then there were a couple of guys who were. Um one of these guys, our relationship started when he actually attempted suicide, and I'd been praying for him at that point. He attempted suicide, and he needed a place to live, so he lived with me and Heidi for a year. And we really invested in him and discipled him. Um, so um, at this point in my life, um, another lesson I'm learning is the need for joy. I realized the key that joy has to sustaining us and sustaining our witness 
Um, another thing that happened at this time that was really tricky was the guy who was living with me, I was the only Christian influence in his life. And he also had a close, he had a tight-knit group of friends. And I think what was happening was, as I was discipling him, they were undiscipling him. And they were actually, I think he trusted them more than me. And I think he was telling them more than he was telling me. So I think they, he wasn't telling me what they were telling him. So I wasn't able to critique what he was learning from them. But I think he was going back to them, maybe, and telling them some of the things that we were talking about. And I think they were undiscipling him. Um, I do know, he told me that when he moved in with me, one of them said to him, hey, be careful. If you live with Phil, he's going to try to turn you into a Christian. So all told at this time, you know, I, I got to, I got to do Bible study with this guy and pray with him. And we had all these incredible conversations and he had all these light bulb moments. Um, and so I saw some really neat things, but eventually this guy said, faith isn't for me. And, um, another, the, the two, the two guys who were kind of exploring Christianity through the Bible study both said it wasn't for them. Um, and then actually Heidi and I, as you guys know, left that church because now we're at Jericho Congregational Church. So anyway, long story. Apologize. hope that wasn't too long. But why, how, and why did I share this? How does this apply to Jericho Congregational Church and its mission to make disciples? So to start, regardless of how equipped we feel at making disciples, um, right now the numbers in our region and in the country kind of tell a different story. The church is in a really steep decline across the country and Vermont and New Hampshire have been neck and neck for the least church state in the country for I think like 10 years or more. Um, and what's more, I think an even more stark contrast perhaps is the fact that if you think of all the churches you know, how many in all these churches, do you know of any stories of anyone coming to faith and joining the church. Um, and in my experience, the examples are almost non-existent. And so I think we definitely need to take a look at how we make disciples in general. The start point is a simple one, and is, is it a priority? Um, but beyond that, we start having to ask to think about how do we train people to make disciples? So my story was that I believed making disciples was a priority. I just didn't know how. I had some help along the way, but essentially I was trying to figure out how to live Christian maturity. If you really think about all the sorting out I was doing, trying to put these pieces together, I was trying to figure out how to embody Christ, how to live Christian maturity. So Christian maturity is knowing how to balance the Christian life. Mike Breen calls it the three dimensions of Jesus' life. A life towards God, a life towards your Christian community, and a life of mission. So a lot of people are good at one of these things. I think it's more rare to find someone who's good at all of them. So as a start point, it might be appropriate to ask yourself, which of these dimensions am I strong in? Which am I weak in? And for the brave those of us who are brave, we should probably ask our Christian friends which ones of these we're, we're good at and which ones we're weak in. Um, another way to say balancing Christian maturity is, is learning to be a disciple. So I think they're the same thing. 
balancing abiding prayer, mission, and investment. I was doing way too much of this alone. That's one of the things I was trying to portray with sharing my story. So the question is, is there a better way to learn how to be a disciple and a better way to make disciples? If we can't, if we can't offer a better way, then what, I think what we're saying then to the members of our church is we can accept that we can expect them to have a similar experience to me. Go and figure it out. But I think we can do better. And, and that's the point I'm getting to with the rest of this class. Circling back to the original text of Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. One thing that I noticed when I look back at my own story is that I, that I wanted to make disciples because I understood that it was the mission, but it was an uphill battle I was facing because I was piecing together the teaching them everything I have commanded you part for myself. Because we have to learn how to obey everything Jesus commanded. That's what being a disciple is. In order to be fruitful disciples who can make disciples. So the point of this class is there is a better way to make disciples, I believe. And the, dig, the big difference between the current way of training disciples that most churches employ and what Mike Breen describes using in his missional communities is how lay Christians live lives together. Um, I said this earlier, Mike Breen believes the key to making disciples is the church living as a spiritual family on mission. I believe that missional communities offer many strengths, and I want to spend the rest of my time laying out some of those strengths. So this is a huge topic, um, mainly because missional communities, those spiritual families on mission, are meant to touch every aspect of our Christian lives. So what I'm doing right now can only be a summary, and we're going to have to get into all the different aspects more in future classes. But I want to look at the complexity of our calling as a reason for missional communities. So the complexity of our calling to make disciples who follow everything Jesus, Jesus commanded requires a team that builds itself up as opposed to individuals trying to figure it out themselves. You may say, well, we work together. We, we instruct our members. We have sermons on Sunday. We have Sunday school. We have weekly stuff. And this is all great and it's all necessary and it's all true. But I think the difference between what Mike does and what we do is still significant and needs to be looked at. Now, I want us to ask ourselves, which of these two examples are we more like in our mission to make disciples? The two following examples. The Apollo mission, mission to the moon. I think it was 11. So Apollo 11, countless specialists, the best people NASA can get on their hands, can get their hands on, the best specialists in all these different fields, contributing their abilities, in a, contributing their skills to one vision. Compare that to Mad Mike. So some of you may have heard of Mad Mike. He's a self-trained rocketeer or rocket enthusiast. He makes homemade rockets. He gets in them and he launches himself into the sky. I think he's got one other guy that helps him. He fundraises on GoFundMe and he launched himself into the air a number of times and then he would return back to Earth via parachute. So at the time that I was kind of laying out the outline for this class, I met with Dave 
and I said, hey, what do you think about this comparison? Do you think it's helpful? And he said, oh, that's funny. Mad Mike just died this week. Or he didn't say funny. Mike, Dave wouldn't say that. But um, he said it may be an appropriate point. Mike just died. And, and I checked it. He died, I think, that week or a few days earlier. He'd launched himself into the sky. And um, I guess his landing had a, a bad landing or whatever. But which of these two examples are we more like? Are we more like the Apollo mission? Are we more like Mad Mike in how we pursue discipleship? And it's probably a continuum. Um, so getting to the complexity of the mission, um, the Great Commission says, make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything I've commanded you. This is a, this is a, a command to make mature disciples, not overnight, but to make mature disciples, obedient disciples, where every aspect of their life has been touched and changed by the gospel. Jesus is saying, teach them the whole thing. So it's a very tall order. This might be one of the tallest orders given to the church. Um, like I mentioned, in my endeavor to make disciples, I was trying to piece together a mature Christian life. I was learning piece by piece everything Jesus commanded. Um, Jesus tells his disciples to teach their disciples to obey everything he commanded them. Maybe I'm splitting hairs here, but this seems like more effective than sending them out and having them figure it out. And again, I wasn't completely on my own, but I think most of the way that I was trying to put it together was solo. I was still talking to people, but most of the time I was kind of in my own canoe. Um, so because of the complexity of this mission, I think it's almost impossible for a lone Christian to teach someone how to obey everything Jesus commanded. The Bible paints a picture of the church coming to maturity to the measure and stature in the fullness of Christ with each member doing its part in the body building itself up in love. That sounds more communal to me than I think most churches have figured out. Um, I believe that a primary goal for any church should be to create the best environment where disciples can learn to obey everything Jesus commanded. That should be the goal. Fertile ground for that. The environment shouldn't be one where we're piecing things together, piecing together how to figure out, sorry, how to obey everything Jesus commanded. It should be the opposite. We should be figuring it out together. And then I believe from, and then I think everyone in the community will benefit from the lessons learned by everyone in the community. And everybody's gifts are different. So there's some things that you and I are really not equipped to teach as well as somebody else in our community. So if we're doing this together, there's an opportunity for benefiting from all the gifts that Jesus has given the church. I think that's something that's really overlooked. The Bible says that Jesus gave them gifts to equip the saints. Um, so here's the catch, though. I was a part of a church I was on different leadership teams. I had Christian friends. I had Christian people who loved me and cared about me. It wasn't a problem about a lack of connections, but rather it was a problem of how deep those connections would go and how deep they went into my life for helping me to figure it out. The environment was often not set up to create these relationships where Christians build each other up to obey everything Jesus commanded. So what do I mean by saying I think there's a better way to do this? How do we achieve an environment that's better at building one another up in love? I think we need to learn how to pull each other into everything Jesus commanded. 
In my story, I shared a handful of pieces of missional living that I was trying to embody. For example, obedience to Jesus' call to mission, investing in relationships, prayer, learning sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, good deeds, casting a wider net, being willing to move down the social ladder, loving the least, living a life of presence, abiding in Jesus, character. These are the things that we need to be pulling each other into deeper, meaningful conversations. We need to be having these conversations with each other on a regular basis. And so I think the church needs to find a mechanism to do this regularly and effectively. So I also think there is a better way to train and sustain saints. What we teach and how we teach. Um, Mike Breen has a lot of ideas for how to help disciples to help each other and invest in each other. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at these specifics over the next nine weeks. However, one tool he uses is a huddle. This is a meeting of about eight people, eight Christians with a designated leader, and the group focuses on teaching the three dimensions of Jesus's ministry. The up dimension, the in dimension, the out dimension, uh, and the out dimension. So the up dimension, as I mentioned earlier, is, the real, is our relationship with God. In dimension is our relationship with each other. The out dimension is our dimension of mission to the world around us. So the up dimension, specifically, Jesus clearly cultivated a strong relationship with the Father and taught his disciples to do the same. The intro to the Lord's Prayer is to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. It starts with that. One thing I hope that my story shows is that to make disciples, you need a good foundation. The stress and difficulty of investing in people, in the of investing in the people that Jesus brought to me, at times was more than my character could handle because my foundation was lacking. So I really needed someone to go in with me, uh, which is the next um, dimension, in. Jesus taught his disciples to love one another and treat his disciples like family who he invested in. Mike has a strong, Mike Breen, who wrote the book we're working out of, has a strong focus on the body of Christ investing in its members. This means making time in our schedules and having specific ways of investing in each other, which again, we'll, we'll get into some of those specifics. I'm only able to kind of vaguely allude to them now. Um, out refers to the church's mission to the world around it. By regularly discussing and speaking about where we see God calling us within our huddles or our whatever we want to call our, our groups, we invite other eyes and other insights into our mission. So um, one thing that I'd love to see in our church is members of our church regularly discussing how we live the out dimension and how we can do it better. The out dimension, again, being the missional dimension. One picture I have in, in my mind's eye is um, from a documentary called Free Solo. So Free Solo, Alex Honnold uh, did this unbelievable feat. He scaled some enormous wall. It was called the Dawn Wall in Yosemite. Completely free solo. No climbing gear. Incredibly dangerous. And there's this really interesting scene in that movie, or that documentary, where he, when he's trying to decide if he can go forward with this, he actually meets with an older free soloist that he kind of just knows from around Yosemite. And he asks the guy, like, about free soloing, he says, you know, do you do it? And the guy says, yeah, I've actually, I've, I've done it, like, I've done this one climb, like, 50 or 60 times, but I never tell anyone where I'm going. I go by myself. So that picture has stuck in my mind because as these people have taken on, these two men have taken on this 
crazy challenging thing of free soloing, they have kind of been knitted into a community together and they now have grounds. They now have this incredible voice into each other's lives because they're, they both know the same world. They're both wrestling with the same ideas, the same problems. And so Alex, this younger free soloist, just, you can tell he just lights up when he talks to this guy because this guy can speak to what he's experiencing. So that's a picture I have for our church is as we would start to engage in relationships or as we already are doing that, being better and learning about how we can talk to each other about it. So we can have those kinds of discussions that are really meaningful. Um, so then we can discuss and pray who God might be calling to invest in and share his, his good news with as well. We can be discussing that together. And then another thing that's really helpful about discussion, discussing the out dimension together is we can hold each other accountable. So as we pray, we pray together and we ask each other, what is God leading you to? What do you feel God is telling you? And as we get clarity, as we return the next week, we say, so you felt God was calling you to do this. Did you do it? And we can hold each other to that. And that really helps us go from idea to implementation. And that's actually a very important part of this whole thing. So beginning with these three dimensions of up in and out may seem too simple. But if you remember, one of my values in this class is fundamentals. So this is not supposed to be complex. But at the same time, it's not easy. And I believe that there's not a lot of churches that strike can figure, have figured out how to strike this balance of the three, the three dimensions of Jesus's ministry. And we as a church probably do well at some of these dimensions, but we probably are also weak at some of them. Um, so now, again, you may, it may not, this may not seem like a great intervention so far. So discuss up in and out together. Big deal. I also think there's better ways to teach. So Learning shoulder to shoulder. Um, I suspect a lot of us have stories like mine, trying to figure out how everything goes together. Um, we're a part of this church. We, we're trying to partake. Oh, sorry. We're a part of this church. We try to partake in it. But then we probably still struggle like I did to put the pieces together. Why? I think we struggle more than we have to. It's going to be a struggle. But one reason is because we've assumed the teaching methods of our culture, I think, are the best teaching methods methods for the church. So our culture teaches largely through lecture format. And we have used that as our primary tool for training disciples. We call the lectures sermons in church. But we pass on the information and then we ask the person to go out in the world and innovate and figure it out. How to apply the information. I think that I think there's an underlying assumption there that the primary hurdle to living out the gospel was having the right information. And I, I would challenge that. Um, and at this point, there's a link to a YouTube video. I don't believe I can say I can communicate this point nearly as well as Joe Sax Saxton. So there's going to be a link, a YouTube link. So please go to that link now and watch it. And um, interestingly, Joe Saxton was discipled by Mike Breen, the guy who wrote our book. So now following up on that short video, the right tool for the job is not always a hammer. The church today has lar largely relied on lecture format, which lecture is important. Jesus did that, but he didn't only teach and lecture. That was a portion of his ministry. What 
Whatever the fraction was, he also taught by other means. The problem is, learn is learning is not simply a matter of passing on information, and lecture format often falls short at teaching you how to apply the information. Lecture serves a purpose, but it's probably not the best tool for making mature disciples, and it's not the best way to teach disciples how to make disciples. So what are better tools for teaching? I think there are probably a handful, and again, I'm only able to allude to them. And, and again, I'm not the expert on this. We're going to discuss all this over the next nine weeks. So there's a lot of room here for innovation and discussion and prayer um, and for us to talk about differences and differences in the community and all that. So, but one way that I think teaching, one form of teaching that I think is actually better for teaching maturity is shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder living and shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder mission. So one side note before I dive into what I mean by shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder living, the world offers its discipleship to us and our children and our friends in a hands-on, shoulder-to-shoulder manner. It transmits its values of pleasure, treasure, and applause, sex, money, and power, its values of what truth is through hands-on, shoulder-to-shoulder modeling. Come and see. Come experience firsthand. The world uses the most powerful methods of teaching it has at its disposal to draw people into its lifestyle. So, I would ask us now, how are the most difficult skills taught, the most complex skills? I would say a lot of them are a combination of lecture and practicum. For example, a surgeon. Nobody would let a surgeon operate on them who's only done lectures, who's only gone to lectures. No one would let a mechanic work on their car who's only sat through lectures. Similarly, and, and you know, the list goes on. There's so many things that you could not learn via just through lecture. Similarly, similarly, many of the things we need to teach to make healthy disciples should actually be taught via demonstration. <clears throat> what should be taught shoulder to shoulder? It might actually be easier to say what shouldn't be taught shoulder to shoulder. Mike Breen's model of ministry is to invite people he is discipling into nearly every part of his life to show them how he prays, studies scripture, spends time with his family, and how he lives out the mission to make disciples. If you remember the three dimensions of Jesus' life that Mike teaches, up in and out, up towards God and towards each other, out towards the world and mission, Mike and Sally build up in and out rhythms into their lives and invite their missional community into all of those rhythms. You may ask how you would invite someone into the rhythm of outward mission. We're going to look at that more closely, but some examples Mike gives is one missional community would always go to the park as a group, same time, same day of the week. Um, another one is Mike would invite his missional community over and his neighbors over for a meal every week. Um, so I have, at this point, I have a question. If you picture yourself doing that, you and a group of friends from Jericho Congregational Church are inviting, uh, meeting in one neighborhood, let's say every week, just pretend, um, for a meal. Who would be better placed to instruct you in your mission? A member of the church that you meet with weekly at a coffee shop and you discuss, you tell him what it was like and you get his or her feedback. The person that you're speaking with. Or the same person, but they're with you in the kitchen making the meal hanging out with the neighbors? Who's going to give you better insights into how you could 
how you could share the gospel with those people or how you could be a friend of those people. I think it's, I think it's pretty obvious. Um, may seem like a small difference, but I think that's a big assumption if you say, oh, it's just a small difference. I would love to watch Mike Breen invest in his neighbors for a season and just learn directly from him. And you would too, probably. This would be a powerful lesson in evangelism for whoever watched it. And there's people in our church who I would love to watch how they do various different things. It's the, and it's interesting. A lot of times it's the day-to-day details of how a person does things, the way they do them that kind of makes their character shine out. If you think of someone who's had an influence on you, it's kind of hard to describe what it was about them. A lot of times it's the way they did it, but it would be hard to put to words. It would be hard to put in lecture format, but the way they do it just is loving or gracious or kind or encouraging. Um, Also with this model, you and I would not be alone in our mission. You wouldn't feel alone. There's someone there with you so you can help each other and encourage each other. When you're feeling burnt out or discouraged, there's someone else there to lift you up, to lift your spirits. There's someone to discuss it with afterwards. Whatever the outward focused event was, you could discuss how it went. There's a group of people praying for the same people. The people you invest in as a, as a missional community get to know more than one Christian. The person doesn't assume you're just an anomaly. You're just a nice guy. Because look, there's a group of people that are like this. And look at how they treat one another. What's more, the church together is a stronger witness than individuals alone. There's some aspects of scripture that only make sense if the body of Christ appears in the world together. John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So people have to see that love firsthand. I was told by an Anglican evangelist uh, statistic years ago, he said, people need to hear a number. He said seven. I don't know where he got that, but people need to hear the testimony of like seven Christians before most, most people before they'll accept Jesus. What if that's true? What if your testimony won't be enough? What if they need to hear more testimonies from more people? Um, so everything I'm talking about obviously requires a huge investment of time and organizing, but we'd be finding our way together. And that's a big difference. And that looks more like an Apollo mission than Mad Mike's mission. Um, so we can all grow as disciples, I believe, by living shoulder to shoulder with one another. That term I borrow from Mike Breen, but he talks about how in the ancient world, you basically did what your dad did or your mom did. So you were going to be trained in the family skill. And that when a young man or woman became a young adult, like an early teenager, they would start working with their mom and dad every day, shoulder to shoulder, learning from them directly. So we can grow as disciples by living shoulder to shoulder with one another. One thing that gets overlooked is the kind of relationships also that are formed by working side to side in a mission like this. My experience is that these relationships are deeper and better. Some of my closest friends are people who I served alongside or we shared in Jesus' mission. Um, We can all grow in our giftedness by the investment of others and investing in others. We won't be as likely to give up or burn out because we won't be trying to do this alone. We'll be better equipped for sharing the gospel by other people's investment. Over time, picture more of us grouping up based on a mission, because you have to have one mission. You can't have 30 missions together. You can't have a mission for every person in the missional community. It has to be one. 
Um, so picture more of us grouping up based on a mission and being invested in, praying together, sharing not the, just the difficulties of our lives, but the difficulties of our mission, showing up in the community in groups, modeling what community really looks like. Um, I know a story of this alone, um, bringing a person into the church. My uncle tells a story of a group of Christians that he was, I think he had a Bible study with, and they would always spend time together, and someone would observe them every week, and eventually just ask to be a part of the group just because of their interaction. Um, those people will be, will, we will become, will be people that have better insights just from more experiences, from being invested in, and also from having new experiences. Um, we'll, we will become people who are better at equipping others. I, I think that every aspect of our lives would be touched by these changes. Our prayer lives, our insight into scripture, our unity with each other. We will not alone, <coughs> we won't be alone in the mission, like I've said before. Our witness will get stronger. Um, our character will be formed. Hopefully, we'll have testimonies, and our testimonies will change. What's more, you can picture a group. What would be cool would be if you picture a group of 20 or so believers investing in each other and investing in a common mission, like a street or a neighborhood. But also consider a day when there's more than one missional community. So you have a missional community of 20 or 30 or 40 people that is able to share what they're learning with another missional community. And just the kind of dynamic expression or the dynamic thing that would be and all the learning that could go on there. Um, imagine a day where we are good at spotting the spiritual gifts in one another and fanning those into the flame. Or maybe I shouldn't say good because maybe we're already pretty good at that, but we'd maybe be better at it because we'd be doing it more often and more frequently. Imagine a day where tons of people in our community are hearing about Jesus, and even if they don't believe what we believe, they wish they could be a part of a family like ours. Or imagine a day where, a day when you feel a desire uh, for someone you know to hear the gospel, and you can think to yourself, well, I should just find a way to introduce this person to my missional community. Or to be more specific, I'm going to have this person over to dinner at Pete's house, or I'm going to bring this person to the park to meet Marcus and Ben and Sarah and the Guilfoyles or, or, or whatever. So a lot of information. Um, thanks for listening. A lot of ideas that need to be kind of traded back and forth and figured out. But um, I look forward to discussing this more and um, hope everybody's doing great. Thanks. Bye.